where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They called me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. Welcome to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I am your host, Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Back, as always, to review yet another um, classic film. Um, thankfully, uh, we are getting a little bit of interest from our, um, listening audience and some other places having a hard time tracking all of, uh, our listeners, but, um, did have another, uh, potential guest host that wanted to come on at some point. Um, eventually we'll try and get back to that. Um, we will circle back around, um, just a, uh, note to please, uh, subscribe, rate, and review, um, the podcast, a, um, review or rating does help other people find the podcast on whichever streaming platform that we're currently available. Uh, I think that's uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and a couple of others. Um, we aren't on Apple or Stitcher yet, unfortunately. Um, that being said, um, if you subscribe, you will get uh, us in your weekly feed um, so that you can get all of our newer updated podcasts. Normally, I have these out um, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. Uh, all right, tonight we are reviewing Goodfellas, the 1990 classic uh, mobster film from um, Martin Scorsese. Um, so just the uh, brief synopsis. The story of Henry Hill and his life in the mob, covering his relationship with his wife Karen Hill and his mob partners Jimmy Conway and Tommy DeVito in the Italian-American crime syndicate. Uh, again, you can find all of our um, abbreviated summary um, work. There should be a link um, in the uh, show notes of every episode uh, or on my personal blog that uh, if you're following me on Twitter, at TJ3Duncan, or on Facebook, um, Instagram, any of those would work, um, should be available to everyone. Um, so uh, I... Don't know. Did you ever see this movie before reviewing it now, Dad? No, I did not. Um, it was not something. This was in 1990, which was about the time that um, I had just graduated uh, from law school and was starting practice and had uh, a child. 
Hmm, so, I wonder who that might have been. Yeah, um, I didn't, didn't have a whole lot of time to go to the movies. Or the, so, the uh, resources either, for that matter. Yeah, I suppose these were the quote-unquote dragnet days. Yes. I see. So, um, but I've only seen this film once, and I think it was probably a good maybe 10 years ago. And I was not all that enamored with it, um, just to say the least, um, on my first viewing. It didn't rank as highly as I thought uh, on the mobster list, per se, as like either of the uh, first two Godfather films. Now, going back and watching it, I do get a newer appreciation for it. Um, I'm not one of those that puts this on the all-time pantheon of um, Scorsese films, personally. Um, I think it's a very good film. I'm not sure, and we'll grade this out as we kind of go along, but I'm not sure this is up there with some of his best. No, it's not. And and quite frankly, this kind of almost summarizes how I feel a large part about the, the gangster movie, which is, um, it's like watching a train wreck. And also, um, there's a certain aspect that this is, uh, like smoking cigarettes on steroids, which is to say, you know, you know that if you smoke, you're likely to get cancer. If you go into the work for the mob, you're likely to get whacked. So, well, I mean, you're good. Spoiler alert. Uh, Henry Hill does not get whacked in this. Yeah, because he turned state's evidence. I mean, well, yes, he is one of the more famous versions of that. But I think you're kind of missing um, part of what uh, the novelty of, a, or, well, I guess not novelty, because that's going to come up later as a category, but the, the point of this movie, or at least in kind of reading Scorsese's comments, is more specifically that, um, you know, this whole lifestyle and why people are drawn to it. I mean, the whole point of the film was is he read a book um, that this is kind of loosely based on before Henry Hill's kind of autobiography type of situation that more loosely just kind of approached this and um, his, his whole thought process going into this film has more to do with um, showing people why this lifestyle was appealing. These guys are kind of like rock stars throughout most of the film. And that's the point I'm making. Yes. Okay. I can see that, but it's like, why would you want this lifestyle if you know what the outcome is good, like is more likely than not going to be? I mean, other than or Hill, who should have been killed earlier in the uh, situation than he was, they were, you know, everybody else ends up either dead or in jail. Well, it, it I mean, makes, they end up. I, I don't most see what's enticing about I don't see what's enticing about this whole lifestyle. And that's what I have a problem with. And Maybe I just fair. like boring. I I would say that that's likely true from you. Um, you know, the, the notion of being a rock star, I don't think has ever been particularly appealing to you. But it's just kind of this up and down ride. Most rock stars, there's a reason that they kind of end up um in rehab or whatever else that they just can't eventually take the amount of like um, full tilt excess, the high peak of being a rock star that uh, comes with all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And similarly, this is kind of that film. 
uh, it's one of the things that I really appreciate about um, them separating out the two, uh, or at least the first two parts of the Godfather films. And I know we'll bring those up at a later date. Um, those are obviously going to be on the list of some of the classics. They're rated up there as some of the best films of all time. But that you kind of separate the first film is all about the rise. It's all the stuff that goes into it and uh, upending your enemies and kind of the underdog point of it. The second one is all of the downfall, the um, greed and the power and kind of losing yourself in all of those things. And what's, you know, prototypically American, um, that you get to that point and it's not exactly either it corrupts you entirely or it's not what you wanted at all. And in this portion of it, it's exactly what he wants. Even at the end, he's unapologetic about wanting to be a gangster. He misses it. So, of course, in real life, he goes back and tries to get involved in narcotics seven years after he goes into um, WITSEC. the witness protection program and ends up on probation, which, yeah, duh. But... Uh, well, and then he becomes some level of notoriety after that by being a regular guest with Howard Stern all the time, writing his own book, and then being like one of the notable people um, commenting on the mob through the 90s and 2000s. I mean, I remember watching him being a, on a commentary of a, a mob uh, movie marathon on like AMC probably about 15 years ago that was hosted by Rudy Giuliani. I mean, well, I, I was not aware of any of this, so apparently he's no longer in hiding, or? He wasn't at the time. He hasn't really been in hiding for, or until he died, oh, probably about um, eight, nine years ago. Uh, oh. I think it was either 2011 or 2012. I have it somewhere in my notes, but. Um, what, what did he die of? I think he had cancer. Oh, which, okay. given how much he smoked, I mean, let's be real, it's not that shocking. But, um, I mean, um, Jimmy Conway, the De Niro character who really was not Conway, it was something else. And, again, I have that somewhere in my notes, but I think it's in a different section at the moment. But, um, like, he was, uh, or he died in, like, 1996 from cancer in prison. And Paulie, or whatever it is, um, ended up dying um, before that, which is actually mentioned in the movie. So, oh, excuse me, Jimmy the Gent Burke, um, infamous for being, like, one of the famous Irishmen of the mob. Not the same one as Scorsese's last movie from last year that was nominated for Best Picture, but still, you know, one of those. So, um, do you want to go first on any other thoughts that you have or impressions um, generally, or did you want to kind of get into some of the specifics? Well, you know, we always talk about how, um, you know, De Niro has a certain style and the characters, a lot of times he portrays are the same and you can, you really point that out with Jack Nicholson, but the more often I watch, uh, Joe Pesci, the more I realize that every character is Joe Pesci. What do you mean by that? He Everything I've read about him in real life is he's loud, he's abrasive, he's overly aggressive, he's uh, profane. And 
I don't think that's a big stretch of acting for Joe Pesci to play these parts. Okay, so it's just good casting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is one of his more notable, uh, like, this is the first big film that he did. Okay, just to show you what I'm talking about. This is an honest story that when, um, oh, and I'm drawing a blank as to the director, the Home Alone film. Okay. Um, I can't think of it either. And, I, and I'm drawing a blank. Um, director, um, yeah, uh, I can't think of it. It doesn't matter. Move on. All right. The director, uh, because Macaulay Culkin was like 10, um, Joe Pesci would let out an F-bomb every other uh, sentence. And so um, Culkin's parents were complaining about the language. So the director imposed a uh, milk bottle on the set. So every time Pesci let out a F-bomb, he had to put a quarter in it. And at the end, they were going to throw a party. They had a five-course meal catered with the money that was in that milk bottle. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good anecdote. Um, all right. So uh, we'll just kind of go through the movie. Um, I mean, the line that basically sums up in this entire thing, and I'm going to get around to it, but uh, the movie can basically be summed up to one line early on in the film. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I always dreamed of being a gangster. Uh, the entire movie takes off from that immediate point. I mean, there's that small buildup, like, scene that they flash, um, back or back from after that of, um, Billy Bats in the trunk and them killing him and, um, trying to figure out where to bury him that eventually they get or lead back into. But the entire film, and I, I read this as a, um, piece um, in just some of my background research that Scorsese wanted this to be like a two hour plus trailer that he wanted the pace and the feel and the narration to be like a movie trailer that he just consistently kept up this um, lightning pace that uh, even as a kid, he's kind of telling you exactly how he got into the mob, how he uh, started out what was his dream how he interacted with his parents and all of it is at this kind of breakneck pace never letting up until the final probably third of the movie and i think this whole notion and again i lead back to it it's scorsese's version or attempt at trying to explain um, what drives people to seek this type of lifestyle or why do these people even get it into the begin with I mean, a lot of his movies are about guilt and redemption and uh, all of these other things, but some of them are about excess. And this movie, more than any other, is about excess. Yes, I understand. And I think more than anything, the editing did a did the best job of this film. Uh, Scorsese may have done a very good job with the film, but the editing and the short clips and the, the quick uh, cuts... To scenes increase the pace of the film and the, the climactic scene where he becomes paranoid and ends up turning state's evidence was cut specifically with jump clips so the whole point was is that you start getting anxious 
with him. Right. And I think that that scene, I will say that that's a notable, it takes you out of the movie almost, that I don't think it flows well. It's kind of disjointed that last, you know, the last day he was a gangster type of situation. But um, it does serve well on its own, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Other pieces, um, just going through the early parts of this, it's kind of um, exceptional how well cast this movie is, but I thought that they did an excellent job, you know, for as much as we're kind of commenting, especially in The Irishman, on doing the de-aging technology that's currently available, they did an excellent job casting both young Ray Liotta and young Joe Pesci. Yeah, they did a pretty good job there. I thought they matched up extremely well. Um, the other part of this, and uh, I think that there is something similar, at least from a sports angle, is uh, how much, um, especially being one of, I don't remember what, was it like six or seven kids that uh, Henry Hill's a part of when he's like younger and they have this whole mob, is, is how separated he kind of felt in this mob and he never really felt like he belonged to anything. So finding a sense of brotherhood and community among the mob kind of makes sense for kind of where he was um, as an adolescent. Um, I mean, it's it's another one of those where it feels very easy to for me at least in hindsight now, especially since I've watched it twice, um, to kind of see what the attraction is. It may not be attracting to me, but I can understand how somebody would be drawn to that. I think that the next wave of films that are going to come out in the next 10 to 15 years are going to be stories about guys who grow up and become members of like major gangs, like the Crips or the uh, the Bloods or those type of things, because it's the same general principle, which is to take a a child who has no social connection, no family, no relationship, familiar relationship, parents or siblings, and they become part of a family and they're drawn into a gang that way. It's the same principle. Uh, The only thing that the modern gang has is that it doesn't have the historic ties to uh, with um, necessarily with the the ties back to the old country of Sicily. Well, I would say that you may be onto something, and it's an interesting idea I hadn't considered myself um, in going in that angle. I don't know if the country's ready for it yet, because I think you show something like the inner workings of the Crips and, um, you know, like a gang war between that, and greater America is not going to have the nuance available to be able to watch something like that and come out, um, as pristine as even like the, or watching a gangster film of stuff that was going on in the sixties and seventies, you still have 20 years of hindsight to be able to, um, separate a little bit out from that. And it's easier coming from a white, uh, background movie where like Italians became a little bit more accepted or digestible, to the general public. I, that's, that's my concern. I don't know if it'll be the next 10 years, maybe 10 years from now, but then again, America's moving very, very quickly. So who knows? But, but the, I, those, I, those gangs started back really in the seventies 
and really hit their start hitting their peak in the eighties. So uh, I would say that some of the peak was that years. early nineties period. Yeah, thirty years. It's still, you know. But we're and they just really getting to the point the where they have kind of the even the black heroes and now kind of the black anti-hero aspect of things where um, they're kind of becoming more digestible. Hollywood's actually opening itself up to more diverse actor sets. But I, I no, I, I think it would be a potentially good idea. I don't know if the American public is ready to digest something so nuanced and heavy as that potentially going forward. I think I, I personally, I would line up and watch that film. I would. But I don't know. You're going to need somebody with some clout, some somebody like a Barry Jenkins or um, I'm trying to think who's the uh, Ryan Coogler, um, even Ava DuVernay, all three that have kind of some notoriety to really tackle something that um, profound and do it the right way. Because I think if it's handled incorrectly, you end up setting back things again. I, I mean, I we're only two years removed from the Green Book and this whole white savior um, you know, befriending the black man type of thing. So it's yeah. like, you know, driving Miss Daisy 2018. So okay, I understand, but, but I, I think for a white society, and I, of course, don't mean to say that I speak for all of white society, but I'm about the poster child for whiteness. Um, yeah. Middle-aged white guy who's a professional. Well, and you at least grew up kind of poor. Well, yeah, but I also um, um, uh, grew up in a in a community that was about um, twenty five to thirty percent African American, so I knew kind of what was going on, and I think that there is a real sociological aspect to this that could be portrayed in a film about gangs, kind of how. Kids get brought into gangs, how they get enticed by gangs, and how gangs alter them. Well, unfortunately, we probably need to kind of move on with this. But um, so just kind of terrible transition. But um, the notion of narration um, as far as screenwriting is always looked or frowned upon. Um, because it's too simple to have, especially when you're adapting a book and you have kind of the all-knowing character, the narration that's behind the book. But I think some of the best movies, especially adapted from books, had narration. I have no problem with it whatsoever. And it worked well in this movie as a delivery device. It did not become overpowering or... Um... You know, and that's the problem with narration is where the narration becomes the story instead of the action. And that was not done. It was an enhancement, not a uh, prime function of the movie. Yeah, and but I, I've never been taken out of a movie particularly because of the narration, uh, at least to this point. I mean, I can understand how it could weigh the thing down, but I think it ends up serving the storyline a little bit better sometimes by giving you that additional information. So, um, moving along, though, um, you know, by the time uh, we get to the end of Henry Hill's childhood, um, him getting popped for the first time, and kind of the symbolism of the later um, situation. So, everybody comes to his court date, 
He's got Jimmy sitting there, um, you know, saying he's proud of him by the end and saying something that's rather foreshadowing to the rest of this movie. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. And it really kind of is a mirror opposite of what ends up happening at the end of the film. There's no support. There's no system. They're all paranoid. And he ends up disobeying the two rules that they have because there is no support system. So uh, I do think that there this more than any other movie that I found um, explains kind of the mobster lifestyle. I don't think you get that in the same way or the same depth look where it the experience isn't there. Like The Godfather is great movies, but that has more to do with certain themes than it is what the lifestyle of a gangster is. Um, I have a couple other pieces just to kind of add, but like, again, most of this just comes back to the rise and fall of one particular person who gets swept up in the, um, greatness or I guess the appeal of living the rock star lifestyle. Every part of this movie from the whole Copacabana scene to all of the, uh, goods to being able to blow wads of cash constantly to even how differently they're treated in prison is just emphasizing exactly how excessive and how large these people lived by comparison to everybody else. And when everybody else is by um, average appeal that they live these quiet, boring lives that they don't make much money and he constitutes this as true living, then I guess I can see where it goes. I understand that you may, you and I probably both have no desire to be a part of this, but I can understand where he's coming from. Okay. <laughs> and, and this is the part that I'm having a difficult time with because it's, you know, when I'm growing up, it's not like I grew up in complete destitute. My dad lived it or was, and mother were, I was an intact family. We didn't have a lot of money. I didn't realize what we were, you know, how much money we did or didn't have, but I had a decent life. Um, um, but I'm looking at this. I know enough to know that there was a lot about my life that was not ideal. And I really had a, a drive to succeed. So I'm looking at this and going, why in the world would you choose that? Where is the path I chose, which is to try to really drive yourself to make something that's within the confines of law and that you're not going to end up at the end of the day whacked by somebody with a gun to the back of your head. You have different values and come from a completely different um, set of choices than the, the average person. I mean, again, I don't. I would not personally choose this for myself, but I understand the appeal. And it now that even just thinking and talking about it, it reminds me of another um, Martin Scorsese film from a few years ago, uh, just a completely different industry, but basically ends up with the exact same type of situation. And that's The Wolf of Wall Street. He takes another book that's adapted, all about a guy who is um, looking for the excess in life, who likes to just blow constant wads of cash and do uh, huge amounts of drugs and wants to ride this giant roller coaster 
because he doesn't want to be average. He doesn't want to be boring. So, I, again, it doesn't appeal to me, but I can understand where it's appealing to others. Um, so I don't know. Uh, and I guess... <clears throat> I, excuse me if I am a little vulgar in this way. This lifestyle to me is like a premature ejaculation. It's like you you get all worked up for it and then nothing happens. There's nothing of value to it and there's nothing long term that's of benefit. I I, I don't know how else to describe it. The highs are really high, but the lows are really low. But you ha- substitute out for having the highs be higher than that. I mean, I'm not going to get into a diagram of like psychoanalyzing you during a podcast. But again, I understand where you're at. I understand where they're at. We can kind of move into the categories then. So um, just briefly, legacy. Uh, I do think that this movie does have a high legacy. I mean, this for all of the like mob movie fans... Um, I do think it's up there. It's constantly mentioned right in the same sentence as the Godfather movies because of its mob connections and how well it translates. Um, For most of the quote-unquote Scorsese fans, like the hardcore people, like this is in their top, this is in a lot of people's favorites. Um, It wasn't necessarily for me, but I think as far as legacy-wise, this thing has legs and is going to be shown in film classes forever, it's going to be up in there. It's, um, I think, just to kind of foreshadow a little bit, it's likely to be in our top 100 when all of this is said and done. I'm going to probably go with like an eight, eight and a half. Your volume cut out. Your mic's off. Yep, I got it. Sorry, I had to cough, so and I forgot to turn it back on. Anyway, no, I, I, I look at this and I go, I realize this is a really popular film, and there's a lot of people who really rank this highly. I know I was reading an, uh, a um, review last night from the Chicago Sun-Times um, that Roger Ebert had written that he ranked this above The Godfather. Um, I think that's a prisoner of the moment at that time, but I don't know if in hindsight that makes sense. Well, it was, to be honest, when I first started, and I started watching Siskel and Ebert when they were still on public TV before they went and started doing this show and capitalizing on the money themselves. Um, But what was your point? Anyway, um, anyway, I guess the point of what I would say is is that you know I've never really agreed with Ebert on a lot of stuff until later in his career. I always thought Siskel was a more reasonable and rational uh, critic. Uh, I always I, thought Roper was a better critic from when I watched it, but that's just me. So, what would so what do you, would you score this then? I'll agree with you because I don't agree with the premise of it. I personally would not do it, but I know what kind of impact. 
I mean, I still see posters of this film all over the place. Well, I mean, frankly, one of the local pizza places is named Goodfellas, so of course it's going to have it up. But um, I know it, it does have stuff all, all over the place. Um, impact or significance? Um, I don't think from the like industry or Hollywood that this uh, more or less put... Uh, Scorsese on the map because I mean he'd already done um, Raging Bull, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver and that was like 10 years before any of this at least so it's not like he had really fallen off or anything he was coming off of a couple of failures but I do think for the non like heavy movies um, that it had either a revival or put him in the attention span of uh, the more general audience he didn't anticipate this film having legacy. That's the thing. He put this film off so that he could finish Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, I know. And, like, it is what it is, but, frankly, you ask any actor or whatever else that, oh, did you think the movie was any good or was bad when you were doing And everyone, almost to a T, is, I don't know what it's going to be until I see it for the first time. Like, all of them, it, it's why the description of um, a movie is like a, a series of happy accidents makes sense. But I do think that um, this even has uh, effect. The Irishman is very much like this film. The Wolf of Wall Street is very much like this film. And those are all in this kind of um, same Scorsese style that he kind of does. Even um, to a certain extent, The Departed has kind of the same pacing. And I love The Departed. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But I, I and you kind of see the copycats of some of his work. I mean, even this year, he was mentioned first by name by um, the director who ended up winning for Parasite, Bong Joon-ho, in his acceptance speech for director. Like, he is a notable name, and it has a lot to do with this film being in his list of um, iconic films. I, I still think, you know, there's not one particular thing that I can point to and say, gosh, you know, because I'm not a technical movie person, but this still has both pop cultural and um, Hollywood level of impact and significance. I got to put it on the same level. It's between an eight and a nine for me. Uh... All right, well, I'd go seven and a half. I, I, so yes, we'll settle on an eight then, that's which fine. is fine. Scorsese, but, Scorsese is obviously a genius because of the way he, the way he is able to establish a pace with his films, okay? That much is, and to some extent, he has got as much signature as Hitchcock did or Billy Wilder did, which is they had a, uh, no matter what film they had, there's a certain feel, texture, and uh, definition of the film that's common to all of them. They could do comedy, they could do serious, and each one of them will have the same general feel. Well, uh, you know, and I'll fi frankly say that that's a lot of stylistic notions. 
I can tell a Chris Nolan film pretty easily apart from, um, you know, even a Steven Spielberg film. There's kind of a brightness to this. There are very few Spielberg films outside of like Schindler's List is such a weird um, kind of break from the rest of the Spielberg nature that. Um, but even to a certain extent, Saving Private Ryan is kind of Spielberg in its stylistic. So there are some that just develop a certain voice that you will understand and you can really tell because their signature is all over it. It's it's like where the where certain rock bands everybody says well they just do the same song over and over no it's their style it's their voice it's how they organize the music it's how they present it same way with film there's a certain aspect where film directors just always organize and establish a or a certain parameter of film that's always their signature. Yeah, it's like how Mom describes Bon Jovi. You mean the same song that he does five different ways? Yeah, across five different decades. Yeah. Anyway. Um, all right, uh, we'll move into novelty. Um, there are a couple of novel aspects of this. Um, one of the most notable from a technical standpoint is um, kind of how they had to improvise and... Um, they weren't originally going to do that, but the the very famous long tracking shot of them walking through the side door of the Copa and then ending up in the front and kind of how all of that happens in that kind of one take um, different set and how it, that happened. Um, that is notable from for a lot of people. Um, I do think that some of the pacing and the style um, were notable. Um, I'm not going to go very, very low, but, um, I do think that it does get a little bit of knock that it's still kind of treading on the whole, uh, mobster notion, um, that, you know, we have the, the organized crime bit and stuff that Scorsese had done or continued to do a few different times, um, that were connected to some of this. So, um, it kind of loses a little bit of its shine from me for that. So I'm going to go probably about a six and a half. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. I, I, I would agree maybe a little more. One thing so like know, a seven? Yeah. One thing I wanted to point out, if you didn't notice, all right, the number of scenes where there's a close-up of Ray Liotta, okay, and it's a gray background. And the only thing you see is his green piercing eyes. It's the only color in the frame. And that's got to be done by design. Because Ray Liotta has blue eyes. Yet the film, Hill, is shown repeatedly, both as a juvenile and as an adult, with these piercing green eyes. I guess I hadn't noticed that, so uh, if I go back and rewatch this a little bit, I think uh, I'll try and keep out for that, but um, good catch by you. Um, the, uh, I guess the, the classicness, if you will, um, again, we've said this now multiple times, it's kind of a period piece. It's going to end up ranking highly as a result of that. Um, 
I, I don't think that there's a huge amount of notes that are out of place because this is drawn from a book. I don't really have any complaints by that. So just by, you know, sheer how we've talked about um, how period pieces end up aging a lot better because they have the benefit of hindsight, I'm going to probably go nine on this um, just because there isn't anything really out of place. It's kind of got its own um, era and it's really going to um, be the same whether you're watching it in 1990 or 2030. All right, I'll agree. So again, I mean, we've had high scores over all of this stuff. Now, the one thing I, I will say, for somebody that may be coming in, and the last big category here for um, us as far as that, um, the rewatchability, I mean, I didn't have a problem sitting and watching this film. It's not one that I'm going out of my way to watch a lot, but like I said, some people have this notion that, or the, like it's their favorite film. Personally, it doesn't uh, grab me in the same way that some of mine do, but I'm also not a, as big into the anti-hero nature uh, as some other people. I like redeemable characters that I can see some level of goodness or attempt at trying to be better. So... I, it, are we doing this more of a general public rewatchability, or are we still doing this more subjective to ourselves? Well, I don't know. I can't. I'm not going to try to speculate as to the general public. I'm uh, going to probably write on that. I'm just talking about my rewatchability. Now, if instead of Joe Pesci getting offed with a gun to the back of the head, it was somebody like Tom Green or Pauly Shore, there'd be a large, <laughs> large amount of rewatchability for me but uh but joe pesci yeah whatever i mean he almost kind of go oh well this is deserved i kind of like that but still um you know the amount of violence and such it's just not i don't know i mean like i've watched the wolf of wall street once i've never really felt like i needed to go back to it it was a good movie it was kind of the same with this. I don't know if I would have ever gone back and watched this movie had it not been that we were doing the podcast. So, yeah. I mean, I'll give it a little bit because of a break because other people really, really like this film. But I, this isn't one that I'm gravitating back toward, just personally. So in that regard, I'm going to probably give it a six. Okay. All right. So audience score, just to kind of quickly transition over to that, was a 97 um, just general popularity. Um, and then I'll just quickly give you kind of a brief overview on the uh, other pieces. So um, two technical awards. Uh, was nominated for director, supporting actor, and supporting actress. Um, nominated for best picture. And it also has appeared on both AFI lists, which given the fact that the AFI uh, lists really don't um, tend to um, incorporate more recent films in some of their listings. Um, it's a little bit notable just from that, especially from uh, the standpoint that it didn't even win Best Picture that year. So um, it ends up with a 15 in the recognition score. And um, I guess it then begs our normal question, should this have won Best Picture? Who were the other nominees that year? Um, that is the one thing that I did not... Uh, look up um so give me one second to just make sure 
I think it was Dances with Wolves, but I need to make sure. Um, yeah, so it was not that one. Uh, give me one more second. So, yeah, it was Dances with Wolves. Um, it was up against Ghost Awakenings, The Godfather Part 3, which uh, a lot of people have problems with. So, realistically, in hindsight, I've never seen Ghost. Have you? Uh, pieces of it. I've never sat down and watched the entire thing. I think I started, like, picking up in the middle and thought it was boring. Um. Okay. Um. I mean, this was the same year as uh, Pretty Woman, um, which Julia Roberts was nominated for Best Actress in. But, like, I've never seen Ghost. I've never seen Dances with Wolves. I mean, they're You're both on my list. much with Dances with Wolves. I know this is supposedly Kevin Costner's signature piece. I thought it should be should have been referred to as Dances with Boring. Um, you know, there was nothing about it that I'm going... You know, other than it, you know, tried to reframe the the narrative of what Native Americans are in American history or culture. Other than that, it was just like, <sighs> is this over yet? So, but, uh, also, actually, actually, if I had to pick among those, the best film was Pretty Woman. Well, I mean, that wasn't even nominated. So, I mean, among the five that it was up there, I honestly think this is probably just looking at them and kind of the discussion. I think this maybe should have won, but I, since I haven't seen any of the other nominees on that list, and some of those are on uh, a list of ones I at some point was going to get around to, um, just because I, I, they're both either on, uh, um, you know, famous films or my um, uh, journey to try and watch every best picture winner of all time. Um, I just haven't seen them, so I'd have to defer a bit. But um, Was this so, 1990 or 91? So it was the 1991, or the Oscars that happened in 1991, but it was for 1990. So, yeah, like, so again, the Oscars cuts off, and your film had to have appeared... Um, before December 31st, you know, been in theaters before December 31st of whatever that year is, and then the awards are usually after that. Um, and that's been the traditional sense. Um, we had the Oscars a little earlier this year because now with the digital process and all the balloting and the rest of it, they could actually move that process up. Yeah. So, uh, Best Picture Dances with Wolves was the winner. Awakenings. Yes. <clears throat> that I did see. It was a decent film. Ghost, me. Godfather Part 3. <laughs> I watched it. I'm like, I don't... I, this is clearly... The fact that that was nominated in that year is because it was just Godfather 3. It was like, well, well okay, you did the third episode, so we'll, we'll give you a, a high five. Here you go. Well, it was I do think good. it... Sure, but I I don't think it completely loses out. So um, we'll just quickly transition. Just for the note, um, the finals total was 63.2, so that does put it at um, one of the higher films on the list. Uh, I don't think it quite gets it to the level of um, 
uh, Raiders had lost arc. I'd have to look here in a second, but um, I do think it, it ends up ranking higher than some of the other ones that we've recently done. Uh, best performance. Um, the easy nominee is either Scorsese or Pesci. Um, just because De Niro's had better performances. Um, I, you know, I don't think he's, I think he's really good in this movie. I don't think it's necessarily, um, he is the best performance per se of the movie. Um, but some people put Scorsese up on top of this one. Um, but Pesci won best supporting for his role in this. Personally though, I probably give either best performance to Pesci or just just a kind of special mention, I do think Ray Liotta makes the film. Okay. <clears throat> I thought Ray Liotta overacted a bit. Um, I would give it to Pesci for the most part. Um, I thought, I thought quite frankly, you could have used a cardboard cutout for De Niro in most of the scenes, and it would have been just as effective. I don't know. There's just kind of a what is it, an aura or, like, um, a charisma that he just brings that he doesn't need to do a whole lot to turn on when he's kind of just doing his thing, but... Okay, so yes. I guess He's Robert De Niro. He's Robert effing De Niro. That's all he does in this film, is I'm Robert De Niro, I'm sitting here, automatically, you're in awe. Yeah. I don't have to do anything. I'm just okay, sitting but here. Like, let's not, okay, it's still not necessarily um, a characteristic that either you or I have. You still have to have that level and be able to turn it on on a dime. So, like, let's not diminish it. I mean, he's still one of the great American actors, and he's a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. But, like, we'll just kind of sit on that a little bit. So... Um, just quickly, because of time, uh, best scene. Um, I, I mean, there are a couple of them that I like. Um, there are uh, kind of um, when uh, he stands up Karen and she comes after him and um, he kind of turns on that charm. And you kind of see how he's easily drawn to certain people. Uh, I think that's a notable scene. Um, the Copa scene is very famous um, for its ability, and it kind of gives it inserts you more than anything else. Um, I I don't know. There, there are a couple of them. The but the one that sticks out to me is the one that's the most quotable. And I mean, it'll kind of get into this whole best line, but um, they're kind of ribbing each other, and you kind of see. Pesci at his um, best and worst at the same time where he's trying to crack jokes but um, you know am I or do I amuse you am I funny funny how funny like a clown and kind of just the whole notion of that of how they hang out and how they interact with each other and everything else that does stand at the top for me that's that is memorable although <clears throat> I have a new appreciation or an appreciation for the climactic scene of how he goes from being a mobster to being a in the witness protection program. Um, the sense of paranoia, the sense that you feel his realization that his whole life is a sham and that he's going to die as a result of the choices he's made. Okay. 
And uh, I guess, I mean, the the line I already gave would be probably my nominee for best line. I mean, by far, it's the one that's up there. But just a couple of other ones. I mean, we've discussed a couple of uh, pieces. So ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. Um, everybody else in the joint was doing real time, mixed together, living like pigs. But we lived alone. We owned the joint. Um, living or like an average schmuck and you know i'm sorry that that almost was offensive to me because i'm like (laughs) you know what's you know the it it basically is like crapping on everybody else who's not been a gangster well yes well or live that kind of like excessive roller coaster lifestyle um other one nominees uh all right i'll tell you something go fuck your mother um, that's up there. Um, we were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the asking. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was in college, we used to have this uh, game that you'd play um, in the dorms. It was called High Bob. And what you'd do is, is you'd turn on the Bob Newhart show, and every time somebody said Bob, you would take a drink. If you watched this film, or for that matter, most Scorsese films, and every time the word fuck is used, you took a drink, you'd be bombed out of your gourd about a third of the way through the film. Yeah, and um, you'd be better off trying to do a power hour through this film. I don't suggest either of those things, but um, because you're going to get... um, fucking wasted but um so and and the other one that we've already discussed never rat in your friends and always keep your mouth shut so out of all of those um which one would you nominate necessarily i don't know can i can i just point out that that's really not two things not ratting out your friends and keeping your mouth shut are the same thing it's like the notion of when my grandfather made every other rule of going fishing with him, we're going to have a good time. It's for emphasis. You're not exactly saying the same thing, but you are. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Otherwise I'm going, boy, is that redundant? Um, I don't know. I like the, you know, maybe that's actually the, um, the mantra of the film ever since as long as i can remember i always wanted to be a gangster yeah and that's where i was gonna go with it is, is i just that that seems to sum up the entire movie and even in his like hindsight at the end that's kind of how it is is he lives out his life exactly like that i mean the iconic line is is you think i'm funny funny how funny like a clown do i amuse you but you know, I, I think that one just sums up the film more than any other. So, um, finally, want... no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say going to the last part is his most indelible moment because we're just kind of running on time here. So, um, we got about a, you know, minute or two here just trying to wrap up the podcast, but, um, I guess most indelible moment for you. Um, just the fact that Pesci is going to become or made 
and he walks in and goes, oh, no, and then, boom, he's dead. I mean, that just summarizes everything about that life. Yeah. I mean, similarly, the fact that the thing that's going to make your career or, like, the thing you're most notable for ends up inevitably kind of bringing everybody down. I mean, it doesn't, but it does. Um, The whole Lufthansa thing kind of sets the downfall part of this movie in, in motion. And really, nobody ends up being connected to it directly. But that whole um, area of uh, how things were in that point where they get a certain level of extra notoriety on them, I think does end up kind of leading to uh, the inevitable conclusion of this. Yeah. So any last uh, thoughts? Um. A very, well, not very young, but he was probably 40 or 35 at the time. But Samuel L. Jackson playing a bit part was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting piece myself. Um, you know, I had some other additional things, just some basic research, but we kind of lost it on just some of the side conversations we were having. Um, I mean, 50 different people were convicted because of Henry Hill's testimony on this. Um the where uh, Henry Hill and uh, Karen Hill were separated in 1989. I mean, but they weren't actually divorced till 2002. But they pretty much, you know, outside of uh, the original Witsec thing, really didn't stay together. But they were kind of this combustible mix. Um, you know, there are some other pieces here, but I mean, anybody could kind of look those up on their own. Um, again, I kind of added in certain things. And I'd love to tell the anecdote on the, um, you know, the infamous funny how line, but I think we're kind of just running on time. So um, we have not decided on a movie for next week yet. Uh, I will take a look at some things, kind of give you some notes. So sorry for anybody looking to hopefully preview. Um, Our thoughts go out to everybody in quarantine right now. Um, Just um, trying to give you a little bit of um, bright and joy. It's been good at least seeing your face, uh, given that I haven't been able to um, most of the rest of the week. And um, I guess we'll get back together and uh, try and uh, do another one of these next week. Sounds good. Have everybody keeping safe and staying your distance. All right. Uh, Thanks, everybody. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. 